As you open up to Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 9, I um, want to tell you about a time I remember growing up, probably about 16 or 17, we had a, a what we called a shore house in Pasadena, and we would go down there for three-day weekends in the summer, and during the summertime we went to a church um, in Annapolis, and so we would drive um, 30, 40 minutes or so to Annapolis, and I remember one specific Sunday we got back home and I realized that I had forgotten my watch, and I had this memory that I had taken it off and stuck it, you know, on the back of the little pew, you know, on the Bible rack, you know how you play with those when you're a kid and things like that, and, and so, but I was old enough to drive, and so um, I told my parents I had forgotten the watch, asked to borrow the car, they said, do you know how to get back to our church in Annapolis, and I thought, yeah, I'm sure I'll be fine, I was uh, ignorant and foolish, and so left to go make that 30-40 minute drive to Annapolis, Drove around for hours, um, came home with a, a ticket stub from the Bay Bridge toll booth. You do not need to go across the Bay Bridge to get from Pasadena to Annapolis. But somehow I went the wrong way on 50 and could not turn around before going over the bridge. Um, at a certain point, I did find the church. By that point in the late Sunday afternoon, everybody was gone. The doors were locked. Never saw the watch again. Um, but at a certain point, I realized I don't even care about the watch anymore. Like, God, please help me make my way back home. Like, can I just find the house again? And, and realizing that my parents are probably going crazy at this point, more worried about me than I ever was worried about the watch. This, of course, is before the time of, of cell phones, of, of uh, you know, Google Maps, of even MapQuest. Um, and I foolishly thought that I could find it, could not. Did make my way back home. Everything was okay. And and while the Lord was not guiding me to my lost watch that day, uh, he did teach me quite a bit. He did guide me and teach me quite a bit about humility, about the need to plan ahead, about the need to be aware of your own inadequacies, which to this day I still do not have any, not a bad sense of direction. I just don't have any sense of direction. Um, and so God God was uh, at work, just not in the ways that I had, had hoped. But I tell you that story because as we look at it, 1 Samuel chapter 9 today, we're going to meet uh, Saul. We're going to read about Saul's beginnings. And the stories begin with him leaving the house, going out to look, not for a lost watch, but for lost donkeys. And he doesn't wander around for hours. He wanders around for days, never does find the lost donkeys, but God is still at work leading him exactly the way he needs to be, accomplishing his purposes. God's hand was guiding him that day, just not in a way that he had suspected. And so we're going to read about Saul's beginning this morning. Um, you can go back to that, that title screen, I believe. And as, as we do read about the beginnings of who will be, spoiler alert, the first king of, of Israel, we're going to see four different snapshots, four different pictures of who this guy Saul is. We'll, we'll hear about Saul the donkey herder. But then we'll also get a glimpse of Saul the honored guest at a banquet. And then we'll see Saul the chosen king. And then finally, we'll, we'll read a, a snapshot of Saul, the transformed prophet. Now, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, up until this point in the history of the nation, uh, the people of God have been led by various prophets and judges and leaders, but they have now asked God, in fact, chosen God, or demanded that God give them a king, have asked the prophet Saul, choose for us a king, install us a king. We want someone that will unite the nation, that will lead the 12 tribes of Israel. We've seen that their motives are not right. They are rejecting God and looking to, to the world and to other humans to lead them. And yet, God is still going to work. 
So let me pray, and then I'll read. We're just going to begin with the first three verses, and then we'll read uh, several more chunks as we go along this morning. Father in heaven, thank you for gathering us together as familiar faces, unfamiliar faces, brothers and sisters in Christ. We now humbly submit to your word. We ask now, in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that your Holy Spirit would come and guide us to truth, guide us to encouragement, that we would find favor from you this morning, joy and peace in you this morning. Lead us now in, our, in the time in our word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of God says there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zazor, son of Bechareth, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. Let's just pause there for a moment. Introduced to this guy, Kish, from the tribe of of Benjamin. Benjamin was the tribe descendant from from Jacob's youngest son. They were allotted, you can see on the map here, they were allotted one of the smallest territories. They had one of the smallest populations of any of the tribes. That's going to become a crucial point you'll see here in in a few moments. But they were kind of southern end, sort of in the middle of the territory of Israel, but a very small territory, small population. Now this man, Kish, had some degree of wealth, right? And he at least earned his wealth, or at least because of his wealth, had a herd of donkeys. Donkeys played a valuable role in Hebrew society. They were used instead of horses. You can see here on the screen, donkeys, of course, look similar to horses, right? But they're they're different. They got those cute, big, floppy ears. They're not nearly as big or as fast as horses, but they were used for riding, for plowing, for pulling carts, for carrying loads. And even though they were smaller and slower than horses, they were known for their strength, known for their dependability. And unlike a horse, a donkey will stand its ground in the, ma- in the face of a threat. And so donkeys were often used as guard animals for herds of sheep and, and goats, very valuable. And so Kish has this herd of donkeys. Some of them get loose, they get lost. So Kish says to his son Saul, who we also read is, is young, he's tall, he's fit, he's handsome. In fact, he's a full head taller than anybody else in the nation. But despite their good looks and their wealth, Kish and Saul and their family are not a family of, of reputation. And we'll read they're not a family of status. Saul, who becomes a central character in the figure, was not an elder in his tribe. He was not known among the nation. He's just a regular guy. And he now is going out to look for lost donkeys. That's how this story begins. As you skim down through verses 4 to 10, you read that they go from town to town, covering a journey of about at least 50 miles. At least three days they're out searching. They still have not found the donkeys. Saul now begins to get worried. In verse 5, Saul said to his servant, Let's go back lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. Right? He's like, I don't know how much this herd is worth, but my, my father's probably worried sick. His servant who's with him has another idea. He says, wait a minute, I know of a man of a God in a nearby town and everything that this prophet says comes true. Why don't, before we go home, let's go visit this man of God, ask him to seek God on our behalf and perhaps this man of God will give us some guidance on where the lost donkeys are. This is in the Bible. This is the story. Saul says, well, we can't go see the man of God. We don't have any bread. We don't have any gifts. We don't have anything to offer the man. Right? In the ancient Near Near East, you wouldn't show up at somebody's house 
let alone ask somebody to, to serve you or to seek God for you without some kind of a gift, right? Like showing up for a dinner party without like a, a bottle of wine or some flowers or something, right? The servant says, well, don't worry. I've, I've saved this half shekel of silver. We can take this to, 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 to the prophet. Now, the prophet they're talking about, you probably suspected if you've been with us, is none other than the, the prophet Samuel. But, but here's Saul who's from the tribe of Benjamin, from an unknown clan, so out of the loop, he doesn't even know Samuel by name. They make their way into Ramah to meet with who will become known to them as as Saul. And so he's worried about what his dad is thinking. He's worried about having enough, uh, worried about having a gift. And and so we, we introduced to this man, the plot line begins with Saul, who is none other than just a donkey herder, right? But I think we learn an important lesson even as we meet Saul, as we look at his humble beginnings. And here's the first takeaway this morning. God uses regular people, regular people with all of their natural strengths and weaknesses to accomplish his purposes. Now, without fast-forwarding to what some of you know is the, the next step and the ending chapter of Saul's story, what's your first impression of Saul as a man? Do you like him? Just for those first few verses. Does he seem like a good guy? Does he seem like a bad guy? Do you, does he seem to be a, a, a gifted person with natural strengths to be a leader? Does he seem to be a man full of weaknesses? Look, look at his background. Look at his physical appearance, right? We know he's from a, a wealthy family. We've read that he's young, he's tall, he's fit, he's handsome. Is that, is that going to make him a good leader? Having a little bit of money, having some good looks. In the ancient world, uh, physical appearance and height would have been hugely important would have been seen as significant indicators of prominence of potential leaders right everybody all the nations wanted their king to be tall that would have been a sign of strength even now 21st century america right as far as as we have developed studies show statistics show that whether it's business or government or wherever tall handsome people are in places of leadership right tall handsome attractive people are often more confident they're often perceived by others, studies show, to be more persuasive, more influential, and therefore better leaders, right? I mean, just scroll through your mind of, of, of some of the presidents that we've had. Tall, handsome men. Does that lead to good leadership? Look, look at me for an example, okay? Let me go. This is probably my better side, right? Now, granted, I am the exception that proves the rule, right? <laughs> Maybe I have height on my side. Probably none of the other things. Okay? Is that... What, where do you put Saul? You evaluate him, his background, his appearance. How about his skills? His skills as a worker, his skills as a donkey herder. One commentator said, well, he's a terrible donkey herder. He loses his donkeys. He can't find them, and then he's lazy, so he gives up and he goes back home. I actually don't think that's the story that's being told here. If you put aside whatever negative impressions you may have of, of Saul, he seems like a loyal guy, a faithful guy. He seems like a hard worker. He, he's, he's from this upper middle class family, but he's out, you know, rallying the, trying to rein in the donkeys. Seems to be a hardworking, faithful man to me. What about his character? What do we know about his character? He's a good son. He listens to his father. He obeys his father. He cares about what his dad may think of him when he's worried that his father is anxious of him. He, he's a respectful man. He doesn't want to go see this man of God without bringing a, a gift. He's, he's diligent. He's respectful. He's, he's humble. Listen, Saul is not a bad guy. He starts out in a place of humility. Many of us, knowing that he's going to turn out to be a failed king, we're inclined to read Saul as a bad apple. 
But I don't think that's what, how the story is being told. This is a regular guy, a donkey herder who has some strengths. He's got some weaknesses. He's got a lot of great potential. And God is going to use regular people as he always does with all of their strengths and weaknesses to accomplish his purpose. Listen, you've walked in here today. Some of you are tall and handsome. Some of you have natural gifts and strengths. Some of you are intelligent. Some of you can do math equations in your head. Some of you have people skills, right? God doesn't mind taking your natural strengths and using them, but he doesn't need to. Some of you have weaknesses and you have been self-conscious your whole life about your height or your looks or your intellect or your natural gifting. God doesn't mind those natural weaknesses. He can overcome them. See, listen, it's not ultimately a person's natural talents that makes them useful to God, as we're about to find out in the life of Saul. It's a person's willingness to receive God's grace. It's a person's willingness to submit to the Spirit of God that facilitates God's purposes in their life and in all who they are. And as long as you're a regular person, as long as you're willing to receive the grace of God, as long as you're willing to submit to the Spirit of God and His leading in your life, God can use you to accomplish His purposes. I, I probably don't have time to do this, but I, but I find this very interesting. Before we go on to the, sec, the, the, the second uh, snapshot of Saul, uh, a commentator this week noted, and I never thought about this, that Saul starts out as a donkey herder. David starts out as a, a sheep herder, a shepherd, right? And I like had never thought of that. Saul's the, the first failed king. David, spoiler alert, is the, the second successful king. Now there's some indication in the scriptures in Genesis that God has a role as a shepherd of his people. I just found this interesting. But it's not until David, who was a shepherd, who becomes king, it's not until that, that the theme of, of shepherding becomes super prominent in scripture. And God is seen as a shepherd, and we are seen as his sheep. Can you imagine if Saul had remained faithful, if his kingdom had been blessed can you imagine if the donkey theme had filled the Bible, had filled the Psalms, right? We'd literally be, be praying, the Lord is my donkey herder, I shall not want. He makes me lie down near bales of hay. He leads me towards troughs of water. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your lasso and your whip, they are with me. Comfort me, O great donkey herder. Right? So, so there's more than one reason we have to be thankful that Saul didn't end up as the, the reigning king of, of Israel. But let's go on to the second glimpse. Look at, at chapter 9, verse 11. We see Saul, the honored guest. Saul and his servant arrive in the town. They ask for the seer, another name for prophet. They find out that they're just in time for this big celebration in the city. We, we read in verses 11 through 14. The people are gathering for a sacrifice for a festival in a high place it would have been a hill marked out for holy occasions. And they find out that Samuel, the great prophet, the prophet they're trying to meet, is coming into the, to the city to, to bless them. Now Saul, I'm sure, thinks this is all just happenstance, right? Wow, here comes Saul. My donkeys were lost. I just happened to end up at this town. Now Saul just happens to be walking into the city right at the time of this festival. Now we can find out. Maybe he can help us find our donkeys. They have no idea. Saul and his servant have no idea that God has planned and set all of this up for them. Look at verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He 
it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me this way? Pause there. So all of this happenstance that Saul is experiencing, the Lord has revealed to the prophet Samuel the day before. This is all going to happen. Tomorrow, same time, man from the tribe of Benjamin, he's going to come before you. He is going to be the man I'm calling you to anoint as the first king of Israel. In verses 18 and 20, Samuel invites Saul to come into the festival. He says, don't worry anymore about the donkeys. They've already been found, right? It's as as if to say, like, God has more important things for you to worry about now than, than donkeys. Come in and celebrate with us. And then Samuel gives Saul the first indication that God is about to do something amazing in his life. He says in verse 20, I want you to realize that all the hopes, all desires of God's people in Israel are now turned toward you and your house. Now, can you imagine what Saul is thinking at this point? Now, all the nation knew that the elders of Israel had demanded a a king. They were all probably hoping and waiting and praying for Samuel to announce the first king. But I I don't think there's any way, even at this point, that Saul realizes he is going to be that king, right? He is confused. Why are you talking this way to me, Samuel? Right? He responds in verse 21 with with what I call humble bewilderment, right? He's like, what's that now? I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Nobody's heard of me in my family. We're not even important in our tribe. And our tribe is the least important tribe in all of Israel. Why are you saying these things to me, right? All these great prophetic things that Samuel is saying, and Saul is just like undeserving. He feels like he's the least worthy person. Wait until next week. When it comes time for Saul's public coronation, Where is Saul? He's literally hiding behind a pile of luggage because he's like, this is not me, guys. You've had the wrong person. But God is saying, brace yourself. Brace yourself, Saul, for what is about to come on you. And so he begins with this humble bewilderment, although again, to to give away what's going to come next, once he gets into a position of power, that humility is going to erode and a fierce pride will be erected in its place. But for now... He's a regular guy, he's a, he's a humble man, and he's, he's protesting, right? Samuel seems to kind of ignore his protest, and in 22 to 25, he just invites him into the banquet. There's a banquet hall waiting, there's 30 honored guests, and guess who sits at the head of the table? Saul is seated at the head of the table. Samuel calls and says, hey cook, you know that big fat uh, leg of the meat that I set aside for the honored guests? Bring that out now, it brings out a special portion of meat. For, for Saul, can you imagine him just sitting there at the head of the table? I didn't even know there was a banquet. Now you're inviting me in. You're seating me at the head of the table. What is going on? Saul is the honored guest at this banquet. It's the first sna- second snapshot we get of him. And here's your second takeaway for this morning. God honors and exalts those who are humble and unassuming when the time is right. 
Those who humble themselves before the Lord, who live in an unassuming way, when the time is right in the Lord's plan, they will be exalted. Saul, again, is humble. He's unassuming. He doesn't expect. He doesn't even want. He doesn't believe he deserves this place of honor at the banquet, let alone to be king of the nation. Right? He clearly has no aspirations. He wasn't sitting there thinking, like, I hope it's me. I hope it's me. Right? I'm the biggest. I'm the best. I'm the brightest. I should be king. He wasn't thinking any of that. And here he is seated at the front of this table as an honored guest about to be anointed king. He didn't ask for that. He wasn't aspiring for that. He didn't put himself in that place. He didn't go meet Samuel and say, Sam, hey man, you looking for a king? Look how tall I am. I'm a head taller than anybody else in all of Israel. I'm clearly the king, right? But here he is seated at this place of honor. Reminded me of this parable that Jesus told. You can look it up in Luke chapter 14. Jesus says, look, if you get invited to a fancy wedding banquet, don't walk into that banquet hall and look for the best table and sit at the head of the table. Apparently in Jesus' day, they didn't have like the little, the little placard, the little sign with the table seatings, right? It was like open seating. But Jesus says, don't go sit in the highest place of honor. Don't sit at the table that you think is going to get called first to the buffet table. Jesus says, instead, when you go to a banquet, you go sit at the back of the room on the, the least honorable table all the way in the back. He says, because here's what happens. Jesus says, if you assume a position of honor, if you think you're the most deserving person in the room and you go sit at the most honorable place, Jesus says, what happens if somebody else more important than you comes in? He says, I'll tell you what happens. The host of the banquet is going to say, excuse me, sir, I need you to step up. This is, you're actually in the governor's seat. And then Jesus says, you're going to have to do the walk of shame and walk all the way to the back of the room to the last seat, right? And sit down. Jesus says, no, no, you sit there first. You sit in the humble place. In the unassuming place, the unpresumptuous place, you don't assume that you're the most important person in the room. You take the least place. And then what happens, the, the, the host will come and say, no, 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 we have a place reserved for you. Please get up. And you're honored in front of everyone, right? And so the scriptures call those in the kingdom of God to assume a place of humility. And when the time is right, you will be exalted. But not before. Not if you push. Not if you ask. Not if you assume. We're called to be humble and unassuming people. Your call as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a member of of God's kingdom, as a a man or woman that has a call, that has a place, you're called to, to assume a place of humility in your home, serving others. Even husbands and fathers that have spiritual leadership in their home do that not in, in a place of presumption that expecting everyone else to serve your needs, but to serve others here in the church, to serve, to give in the world, in the workplace, amongst your neighbors. Seek a place of humility, an unassuming place. And when the time is right, whether in this life or the next, you will be exalted. Let me think about a, a man this week who emailed me. This is a man who has, who has seen honor, has literally been on the, on the world circuit as a successful uh, uh, international athlete. And yet this week, after months and months and months of crisis, he found himself in a courtroom. But through that crisis he's experienced over the last year, he's been transformed. And he's come to Christ and had renewal. He's on his way to a court hearing and he has a flat tire. Can you, can you imagine that? It's like, come on, Lord. Really? Like, give me a little, a little something. This is like, talk about kicking when you're down. He said, he told me in his email, he said, I changed that tire. I walked into the court hearing and I had supernatural peace like I've never had before. As I submitted myself to the will of God, as I trusted God in humility, 
And you know what he said? He's talked about how thankful he's been for the Lord's work in his life in the midst of this crisis. How thankful he's been for, for the home that he's had here at Living Hope to have brothers and sisters come around him. He said, you know what, what is one of the greatest joys is? He says, now I, I, I'm serving the church. I stay afterwards and I stack chairs. Okay? And he's acting like this is like the most beautiful, amazing thing he could do. He said, I look forward to coming to church and to stacking chairs and to serving this church. He's not bitter. He's not seeking to elevate himself above and beyond his crisis or saying, God, this is me. I used to travel the world as an international athlete, and now this is what you're doing to me? He's finding a place of humility, unassuming. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is our call, brothers and sisters. So we see Saul the donkey herder, Saul the honored guest. Look now at verse 26. We see Saul the chosen king. The banquet is over. He spends the night in the city. And hear what happens next. Pick up with me in chapter 9, verse 26. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul rose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people of Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went out to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? You follow him, what's happening next? He spends the night, Saul, Samuel comes early in the morning and wakes him up. He says, it's time to go. They're walking out of the city. And he says, hey, look, send your servant on ahead. I need to tell you something in private. I need to reveal to you the will of God for your life. Now, listen, I don't think there was really much chance that Saul understood at this point that he was about to be anointed king of Israel. But, but the Lord's intentions will be made abundantly clear. Saul, Samuel pulls out a bottle of oil. Olive oil would have been used for many, many things in that, in that Hebrew culture. But one of the things is it would have been done to, to anoint someone. That, that is to set them aside for a holy task. A sign as the oil touched the person's head that the, the very touch of God was coming on them. And the prophet Samuel declares, Hasn't the Lord appointed you as a prince, as a ruler over people? Surely he has. God's reign is going to come over the people through you. And through you, God will deliver his people from all their surrounding enemies. And he says, and you want a sign that this is going to come true. And he tells them about how you're going, to, you're going to meet two people. And here's where the place is going to be. And they're going to tell you the donkeys have been found. And just as you were worried about what your dad's thinking, yep, your dad is worried about you. And Samuel tells them all this to, to verify you are God's anointed. And we see through the unsuspecting donkey herder Saul, we see this, this beautiful principle. This is your third takeaway for this morning. That God's provision is always at work. Listen, God's provision is always at work. Even in the midst of sinful motives, 
and frustrating circumstances and the seemingly random events of life, God is working to deliver his people. And we see this in the life of, of Saul. I love how God first blesses Samuel and Saul with this private anointing, right? Because next week we'll read about their public coronation before the, before the nation. But God is confirming for Samuel who the king is going to be. God is reassuring and preparing Saul of his new role and it's happening all in privately. God orchestrating these events to bless both of these men. Why is God doing this? To deliver his people. God, we read, has not forgotten his people. Look back up at verse 16. The Lord had told Samuel, you shall anoint the chosen one, you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now it's interesting, this word prince, that we read a couple times in the text, it's a general word in Hebrew that means a ruler or a leader. It's possible that God is using this word to hint at the reality, look, he's going to be set up as king, but he's really just a prince because God in heaven is still king over Israel. But the Lord gives Samuel the reassurance that God is going to use this first anointed one to restrain, to rule over the people. A ruler, why? Why would God do this? He says, because I've seen my people and I've heard their cry. Now we know, we know that the people of Israel's motives are worldly and they're selfish. They're asking for a human king when really all they need to do is to rely on God, the true king. But despite their sinful motives, God's providence is still at work. God's grace is still at work. He will still send them a human deliverer even though their motives were bad. He still says, I I hear them. I know that the Philistines are oppressing them. And I'm going to send the first king, Saul, to deliver them. To have mercy on them because I've heard their cry and I've seen their struggle and their oppression. Remember that from chapter 1? When the faithful woman, Hannah, this barren woman, cried out to God, begged God for a son. And the scriptures tell us that, that God heard her cry. God remembered her. Guys, listen. God remembers you. I, I, I don't know what you're going through. I know, I know some of you have met with me and, and, and I've, you've sat in my office as you've cried, as you've unpacked your pain and your struggle and the hurt that you're, that you're suffering. But I don't know it all. Your spouse doesn't know it all. But the Lord knows. The Lord sees. The Lord hears the cry of your heart. The things that you're, you're, you're too afraid to even share with your spouse or your best friend. God knows. God sees. And God will deliver you. His providence is at work to work in your life. And wherever you're hurting, wherever you have needs. God's providence is at work in the midst of, of sinful motives in the midst of the frustrating circumstances that you face and the difficulties and the hurt and the pain and the flat tires and the, and the jobs that don't work out. But God is also at work even, even through the seemingly random events of life, right? I mean, Saul just figured he had had a bad day when he lost his donkeys. He probably just thought he'd had a good day when he happened to run in to Samuel at Ramah. But yet God had orchestrated the whole thing. God had warned his people, don't choose a king. He knows their heart is in the wrong place. And yet in his sovereignty, he doesn't remove himself from the situation. He arranges and he orchestrates the events to work through Saul to deliver his people. And so, yes, God's providence was at work in this story through the donkeys as a way to call Saul to God. Through Samuel to anoint him as king and and through the 
The prophets that we're going to meet in a moment that will be used to transform Saul's heart. Listen, you may not see it. It may be painful, but God's providence is at work in your life. For those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose, all things work together for good. You say, but my motives are sinful. I know, the Lord knows that. You say, but, but I'm trying to do my best, my motives are poor, but there are other people with sinful motives that are hurting me and oppressing me and making it hard for me. The Lord, the Lord knows that. He can work in and through and around sinful motives. You say, but the circumstances of life are too difficult, they're too frustrating. Yes, God knows that. He's working in the midst of those frustrating circumstances. You say, but life just seems so random. And, and life is haphazard. No, no, no. It's the, it's the providential hand of your sovereign king, your heavenly father, who is working in profound ways to deliver you, both in this life and the next. Let's look at this closing scene as we read about Saul's beginnings. The donkey herder turned honored guest, turned chosen king, who now will become the transformed prophet. He's traveling home, and Samuel tells Saul about this profound encounter that he's going to have. Pick up with me in chapter 10, verse 5. Samuel tells Saul, After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Let's unpack this. Saul leaves. He's been anointed king in this private ceremony before Samuel. He, he arrives at, at Gibeah Elohim, and it's a town that has a, a military garrison of Philistines. Now, there was much territory in Israel, as, as today, sadly, as we're reading in the news. In that time, there was disputed territory. And so there was both a garrison of, of Philistines, and there's also a group of, of Hebrew prophets, right? Not about, about you. But I'm reading this story, and I'm hearing about the oppression of the Philistines, reading about how God has anointed Saul to be, to be king. Why? To deliver them from the oppression of the Philistines. And now we read, he comes to a city where there's a garrison, a military barracks full of Philistines. You know what I expect? I expect the eye of the tiger to start playing, right? Like, this is like the moment to get pumped up. Like, Saul's going to gather together an army and go in and, and, and destroy the Philistines. Like, that's what a king does, right? This should be his first act of... Of, of God. God's power is about to be displayed in Saul's life, but not as we would suspect, right? He's going to have this spiritual transformation, this spiritual encounter with this group of prophets. Think, think of like a prophetic guild, okay? This, this sect of prophets that likely lived together, worshiped together, trained together. 
And they're coming back into the city with their musical instruments. They're singing and they're worshiping and they're prophesying. Now the Old Testament prophets were, were mouthpieces of God, right? And we often think, oh, they predicted the future. That was part of, that was a piece of the role of the prophets in Israel. But they had a much broader role as worshipers, as prayer warriors, speaking for God. They were the spiritual leaders of the nation. They were the holy rollers of the day. As someone recently reminded me, they would have been like the window washers, right? In the worship service. These are the prophets, okay? They're the ones that everybody's like, they're spirit-filled. And they're walking into the city. Saul, who's just been herding donkeys his, his whole life, he has no association with this prophetic group. And, and Samuel predicts in verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord's going to rush upon you. You're going to join them. You're going to start prophesying. You're going to be turned into another man, or as some translations say, you will be transformed. And, and what happens? Samuel gives him some further instructions, and we read in verse 9 that, that Saul turns to leave. He turns to leave from the conversation, and God gave him another heart. Transformed. And everything happened just as the prophet predicted. In fact, we read in verse 11 that, that Saul's transformation was so profound that people began to talk about it, right? His reputation had changed. People noticed something dramatically has shifted in this man's life. He's no longer a donkey herder. He's now been transformed to a spirit-filled prophet. And this proverb started in the nation. What is Saul now among the prophets? And, and that was a proverb for when something unexpected when, when someone became a part of an unexpected group, that was the proverb. It'd be like if Ryan, who does Ryan root for? Who's his team? 49ers, 49ers right? We all know that because he wears the 49ers gear. If, if, if Ryan walks in next week wearing a Ravens jersey, we'd all be like, did you see, did you see what happened to Ryan? What, is Saul too among the prophets? Right? That, that's the meaning. Like, we never thought that would happen. It's dramatic. That's what's happening in Saul's life. He has become this spirit-filled, transformed prophet. And so here's our fourth takeaway this morning. God's chosen ones must first be transformed, filled with the Holy Spirit, given a new heart before they fulfill their calling. Saul is not ready yet to lead an army and defeat the Philistines. Wait, and, and let's read what happens next week. First, he's got to meet God. First, he's got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. First, he needs a new heart. God's transformation is always what empowers us to fulfill our calling. Saul is, be, Saul is being counted among the prophets. And if that can happen to Saul, no one is too far outside of God's transforming grace. The prophet Ezekiel would later say this. God would say, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. Think about how Christ has transformed you, how Christ has transformed the people in your life, how he has taken people who have no business serving the Lord and radically transform them. Think about how different you would be without the grace of God. Zach, I thought about you and your yearning and your searching and you're looking around at what the people around you had and you're saying, I, I wish I had that. And I think about the day where you sat on your lunch break after cutting down some trees with a group of coworkers 
And for the hundredth time, somebody shared the gospel with you. And what happened in that moment? The Spirit rushed upon you and you were transformed. And Zach is a new man. I thought about Mark. Mark usually sits over there. I don't see him this morning. But if you know Mark's story, he, he, was, in, he was in a hard place. He was in a dark place. I'm not going to share his details. You can go talk to him. And the Lord got a hold of him and transformed him. And now he's a humble man, a father who has children, who's serving in the church. God has transformed him. Was Craig off training or something today? I, I thought about Craig. Craig met the Lord doing a PhD program in, 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 in science. Sitting around your kitchen table talking to your father. Am I right about that? And God took this logical scientist who had rationed and reasoned his way out of God every way that he could. And there's no other explanation other than God just got a hold of his heart and transformed him, who is now a scientist to the glory of God leading in the church, serving his family, transformed. Imagine where he would have been today without the grace of God in his life. He would have been a successful scientist who would have been miserable. I, I thought about Mike Santoro. Santoro, are you here today? Where'd you go? Brother, you, you were the most hardest working person. You were a hardworking baseball player, hardworking a student. You were a hardworking Roman Catholic. You would have done everything you could to work your way up into heaven. And then in your early 20s, the Lord met you and he transformed you. And he said, you cannot do it. And he gave you a new heart. And now you're a new man, transformed as a father, as a husband, as a leader, a humble man who's speaking for God, serving for God, living for God. Think about the transformation that you have had in your life, however big or however small it may be, whether it was last week or whether it was 30 years ago. Whatever your calling is today, know that it cannot happen without the transformation of God's work in your life. Your role as a parent to raise your children, your role in your home, your role in your workplace, however secular you think it may be, God has put you there for His purposes your role in your neighborhood, your role here at Living Hope Church, your role in our culture, in our society. In this day, in 2021, you say, man, I wish it was 30 years ago or 50 years ago or I wish I was in the early church. God put you here today for your calling, for this purpose in our generation. And because you have met Christ and been transformed, because the Spirit of God has fulfilled you, you are now called and equipped for His purposes. Saul, Saul will do some good. We're going to read. He, he's going to do some good. He's going to deliver God's people. But the time will come in chapter 16 when his leadership will fail. And it's not because he wasn't tall enough. It's not because he wasn't smart enough. It's not because he didn't work hard enough. In chapter 16, when, when Saul fails as a king, it's because his heart became too hard and too closed and he no longer listened to the voice of the Holy Spirit. That is what, that's what it means to fulfill your calling. Is to be open to the transforming grace of God in your life. To be attentive to the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then you're equipped. Then you're equipped for every relationship, every circumstance, every challenge, every calling that the Lord has given you. This man Saul was a, was a regular guy, but he was a flawed man and he would ultimately be a, a failed king. And we've been seeing foreshadows of, of Christ in the Old Testament. And it, it seems hard to believe that, that Saul could even be worthy to be a foreshadowing of the, the true anointed one. But think about Jesus for a moment. Our Savior Jesus, born as, a, as the son of a carpenter, raised in the no-name town of, of Nazareth, leading a regular life for 30 years. 
And then he was baptized at about age 30 by his cousin in the river. He came up out of the water and we read that the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove and rested on him. He heard the voice of the Heavenly Father confirming his identity as the beloved Son of God. And then our Savior Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was tempted. He stood before the devil and he launched his ministry as the Savior of the world. And when people heard his claims to be the Son of God, to be the way, the truth, and the life, to be the Savior of the world that had been prophesied about, you know what they said? They said, isn't this Joseph's son? He's from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet God empowered him through his providence, through his divine identity and the the calling and empowering of the Holy Spirit to live out his calling for you and I to deliver us to live a life of of righteousness to take on our sin to climb onto the cross that we might be delivered from the hand of our enemies from sin and death Christ rose from the dead to defeat all of our enemies and he promises to one day return to this world to usher in his kingdom of God to make all things new and so as the worship team comes I invite you to turn your eyes toward Christ. You see this morning all that we have talked about and learned, God is going to use you, a regular person, with all of your strengths and weaknesses to accomplish His purpose by His grace. That if you will walk in humility, in an unassuming posture, that the day will come when you will be honored and you will be exalted when the time is right and the Lord sets the timing for that. Because His providence is always at work in the midst of your sinful motives and frustrating circumstances and the random events of life, God is always at work in and through you to deliver you and to deliver His people, His chosen ones. Because our God is a God who who transforms, who infills with the Holy Spirit, who gives us a new heart that we can fulfill our calling for our Savior. So let's stand together. As we stand this morning, I want to invite some of the the elders and and, and leaders to come forward across the front of the room. We're going to close with a couple of worship songs this morning. As these folks come forward to pray with you, I want to just call you to come up. Maybe this morning you need a transformation. Maybe this morning you need to, to say, God, here is my heart of stone. Would you give me a new beating heart that I could be alive to see you? Maybe this morning you're full of pride and you need the Lord for hu- to give you humility. Maybe you have been humbled by God and you need the Lord to give you strength. Maybe God's providence is too faint to see. Maybe you need to come up to, to receive prayer to say, my life is a mess and I don't see the hand of God at work. Maybe you have a calling that seems too intimidating or too insurmountable. Come up and let us stand with you. Let us pray with you that the true King of kings and Lord of your lords the true Savior, the true one who transforms could meet with you today that you could be a new man, a new woman empowered by God for this life and the next. So come up and pray with us. Let's worship together. Let's worship our great God.